0: Hello and welcome to Cross the Line, a Christian perspective on politics. If you enjoy this episode, find us online at thecitizensbrief.com. Give us a follow on Instagram and a like on Facebook at the Citizens Brief to see more insightful Christian political content in your feed. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this episode of Cross the Line. Now to your host, Daniel Hoster. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cross the Line, a biblical perspective on politics. I'm Daniel Hostetter, the editor-in-chief of The Citizen's Brief and your host for today's episode. As our wonderful contributor Tyler Williams just said in the intro, check us out online at thecitizensbrief.com and on social media at thecitizensbrief. Let's do a quick recap of the top news stories for the past week in brief. First, Congress has passed a massive $2.2 trillion stimulus bill to shock this quickly septic economy back into some semblance of a working order. The package includes hundreds of billions of dollars in small business loans and airline loans, as well as specific money allocated for payouts to Americans. Expect to receive about $1,200 a person, plus $500 for each child, depending on your income in 2018, by sometime in May. President Trump signed the bill into law yesterday. Number two. Coronavirus has spread to every state in the union now, and our great nation has nearly ground to a halt. Schools are shuttered indefinitely, and businesses are being forced to close around the nation. Many will not be able to reopen after this pandemic. Stocks have tanked for weeks, but the Dow Jones Index shot up 21% over three days because of the aforementioned stimulus bill. Although the president has stated that he wants the country back up and running by Easter, prominent medical professionals such as NIH head Dr. Anthony Fauci beg to differ. Dr. Fauci and his contemporaries have repeatedly cautioned Americans to not get our hopes up too quickly. We may be in this long, for the long run. Number three, Joe Biden is now the presumptive Democratic nominee for president, as key party leaders and their massive amounts of funding have quickly coalesced around him as the mainstream party, as yet again abandoned man the progressivism of Bernie Sanders. Biden stacks up well against Trump in the general election as he polls very well with white working class voters in swing states such as Michigan, Florida, and Pennsylvania, all of which will be key to his re-election. Biden's support among trump skeptic evangelicals and Catholics is key to his success in November. Speaking of presidents, let's dive into our topic today. The Founders' Assertion of Natural Rights and Sphere of Sovereignty. The great majority of our founders operated under a certain set of theistic religious beliefs. Some of them were practicing Christians, while others were proponents of deism. Despite that distinction, the theists who founded our country 250 years ago discovered some very important truths that have been vital to the survival and success of America to this day. Our second president, John Adams, said, The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. I believe, as John Adams did, that there is an underlying, an eternal, and an immutable characteristic of Christianity that our nation is built upon. I believe that thing is natural rights. Every person on earth possesses natural rights. See, we all have something in common, at least one thing in common. We are all children of God with a distinctly human nature. And every single human is endowed with certain rights and protections under God's divine natural law. And all of us subconsciously know exactly what this law is. We neatly know when the rights that this law gives us are violated. Look at uh, Romans chapter 2. It says, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, To quote an R.C. Sproul devotion, the ethical standards of even the non-believers prove that all people are made in the Lord's image and therefore have his moral principles on their consciences. The various cultures of the world and civilizations have held uniquely similar moral standards really since the beginning of time, even though specifics and semantics may differ. All civilizations hold some semblance of the idea that life is precious, honor is valiant, and courage is laudable. As C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, Selfishness has never been admired. Men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four, but they have always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you liked. See, God has written a natural law on our hearts, and out of that self-evident law is birthed the idea of natural rights. Look at the Declaration of Independence, our founding document. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These three things, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, are general principles agreed to by the great majority of Americans. But different sectors and parties disagree on how to protect these three foundational rights, specifically the pursuit of happiness. The founders' vision of limited government, free market solutions, and a society-focused culture prevailed through the years in both Republican and Democratic parties until what author George Will calls middle liberalism began in the 1930s under the Franklin D. Roosevelt administration. FDR's ambitious and radical New Deal was an ambitious to, was an attempt to pull the nation out of the Great Depression. But it quickly turned into something quite different and much more dangerous. See, FDR felt the government was too hands-off and was not going far enough in its involvement. Here's the all-important distinction. FDR argued that the state is compelled to have the final responsibility, I quote, the final responsibility for the happiness of the people. So the government was no longer a means to an end. It was no longer enabling people to find happiness for themselves. Rather, it was the means, and it was the end. It was the final responsibility. See, FDR's nanny state ideals were quite consequential. Taxes rose, countless government programs, and bureaucracies were created, which were helpful in the short term, but decision-making on economic matters and social matters slowly shifted away from the hands of the people into the hands of the New Deal government planners. Years later, during the nineteen sixty four election, during the civil rights movement, Lyndon B. Johnson grasped onto FDR's middle liberalism and swept into the presidency with a large congressional majority in his favor. LBJ transformed FDR's New Deal into something different—an even greater plan, which he called the Great Society. Now the government was deeply involved in political, and economic, and societal matters. LBJ top aide, Harry McPherson, summarized the administration's goals well when he stated the following: "I quote, middle class women." bored and friendless in the suburban afternoons, fathers working at meaningless jobs or slumped before the television set, sons and daughters desperate for relevance, all were need in community, beauty, and purpose. What would change all this was a creative public effort. This is a, an incredibly revealing statement. McPherson basically summed up the ultimate goal of progressivism, which is to solve the problem of brokenness with more government. But this is not a biblical perspective. As Christians, we, we must realize that we cannot fix sin and brokenness with the incredibly broken institution that is the state. Government can bring order and justice to society, but it can't provide community, it can't be truly merciful, and it can never love the broken as Jesus loved the broken. So, so then, what is the proper approach to governing well? As Christians, we, we must recognize that government is not the ultimate solution to sin. Instead, we have to look at this issue from a robust, three-pronged view of society. This idea is called sphere sovereignty. A neo-Calvinist theologian and former Dutch prime minister, Abraham Kuyper, was one of the first to promote this in the early 1900s and late 1800s. Sphere sovereignty, as he dubbed it, is the concept that all of life is specifically ordained by God, and God has set it into different sectors, or or spheres, as as Kuyper called them, that are separate from each other and have different domains, yet are interconnected. So there's three spheres that Kuiper set out. The core sphere is the family, which is led by the head of the household, who is directly responsible to God. And the family determines its own way of living, unless it fails. And then it's the job of the church and the state to intervene. Uh, The second sphere is the church. The church, their job is to fulfill spiritual need, to foster that community, and to care for those who are less fortunate. And the final sphere is the state, which must provide order and justice to society. Now, when any of these three spheres oversteps their boundaries or holds too large of an influence on other spheres, the other two spheres suffer. Let's look at an example. So a separation of church and state is necessary, and it's welcomed under sheer sovereignty. And even though this concept of separation in church and state has a really bad co- connotation, the real goal of separation of church and state is to keep the church from politicking ex- excessively and to keep the state from meddling in the church's affairs. In addition, it's not the job of the state to dictate a code of morality, as that's the job of the church and the family. You could say that each sphere is a sort of pillar, as Skyper put it, self-supporting and it holds up society in its own unique and specific way. When these three spheres, the family, the church, and the state, are all functioning properly within their own limits and boundaries, all three institutions will thrive. When the government stays out of family matters, the family can make their own decisions to flourish, and the government can focus resources on the economy and the military. When the church stays out of the government, the church remains focused on its biblical mandates, while the government can stay in a proper relationship with the church. Seer sovereignty is a logical and a practical approach to the role of government in society, because rather than the state fixing every problem, the church and the families must realize their own biblical responsibilities and bring what they have to the table. Let's bring this all back to the idea of natural rights that we brought up at the beginning. See, progressivism asserts that absolute rights and morality do not exist except under government. So an all-consuming state, as FDR knows, LBJ had proposed, in which rights are benevolently given by the state and can be taken away at any time, consequently, that that idea is ideal. But classical liberal intellectuals, who are today's conservatives and moderate liberals, argue that the Constitution did not invent any new rights. Rather, a limited government, to quote George Will, presupposes a reservoir of rights that pre-exist government. See, natural law is deeply connected to the idea of a constant and knowable human nature, established before time even began by a God above and beyond any of our societal whims and changes. Limited government, that idea is firmly grounded in the biblical assertion of natural rights and natural law. Natural rights and natural law have always existed because God has always existed, and that's a part of his character. And therefore, the state and the government is subject to and must protect natural rights and natural law. See, that is the true and right role of the state. Because God is superior to any human government, any form of governance must be subject to his laws and his idea of rights. If we see society through this biblical lens of sheer sovereignty, we can realize when the state is overstepping its bounds and we can call it out when necessary. Calling out the state is a delicate topic, but it's explored really well in Eric Metaxas's fascinating biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Confessing Church in the 1930s. For those unfamiliar with the story, Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor, stood up against the subversion of the German church under Hitler and the Third Reich. He ultimately paid for his righteous descent with his life. If you want to read more about um, his idea of when we need to call it the state, uh, go check out that book, Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas. It's a great read. So what does all of this sphere sovereignty idea and natural rights and limited government look like practically in today's America? First of all, big government is not the solution because it violates the natural right of securing the pursuit of happiness. It tends to overstep the bounds of its sphere and forces a specific view of happiness onto a citizenry. Although the compassionate ideals behind big government are lofty and good. Uh, there's a lot of people that, that like uh, big government that really care about people and they really feel that a social safety net is the best way to do things. Um, although that's the case, big government promotes equality of outcome over equality of opportunity and thus violating the rights of countless individuals and families. The church and the family are better equipped to provide that social safety net. That's really the church's job. In addition, the government can never f- fill the spiritual longing that every man has. And they should never try to. They should never try what L- L- LBJ proposed and uh, McPherson. That is the responsibility of the church. Secondly, limited government is both desirable and it is achievable. Limited government lives within its proper roles in spirit sovereignty as the secure of justice, order, and natural rights. That attitude of stewardship and responsibility allows the church and the family to flourish. Lower taxes and less government mandates bring liberty freedom, and the empowerment to individuals, while still providing collective order in society. The church is free of political responsibilities, so it is able to fulfill its rightful responsibility to care for the poor and the downtrodden, both financially and spiritually. Families are free to choose the best education and upbringing for their children, so the future of our country is bright. If America is to return to the original vision of the Founding Fathers, citizens, politicians, and church leaders alike must look to the divine example of Christ, He set a good plan before us, and all we have to do is stay out of our own way and follow him. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Cross the Line. We appreciate every one of our listeners as you are the reason that we can continue to produce content such as this. If you have some spare time on your hands as a result of the COVID-19 and quarantine and isolation, check out thecitizensbrief.com, read some of our past editions there of our newsletter, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We deeply hope that TCB, uh, Cross the Line, and other third-way media productions can help to change the conversation surrounding Christianity and politics. My name is Daniel Hostetter, and thank you for tuning in to Cross the Line.